Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an astute and artistic life. So today's guest, Jody Esselstyn, is a registered nurse and a docent at the Freyland Museum of Art at the University of Virginia. And that's maybe an unusual combo, but Jody combines her two interests, medicine and art, in some innovative and life-saving ways. She leads programs that help medical students make better diagnoses. They can display more empathy at the bedside, de deal better with, with grief around death and dying, and collaborate more effectively and generously with their medical peers through visits to art museums. It turns out that art is a perfect medium for helping people see beyond their assumptions and projections and to observe what's actually in front of them. And it turns out further that being able to see what's there and only what's there helps doctors more accurately read x-rays and other scans. In fact, a Yale University study found that exposure to an art appreciation program significantly improved diagnostic skills in dermatology students, meaning more moles were correctly identified as cancerous or not, leading to more appropriate treatments. Well, I say bring on the Picasso, bring on the old masters. So before we get to our conversation, a couple of quick things. Wellstart Health is starting in September, a new cohort if you're interested Check us out, wellstarthealth.com slash program. We've been doing a fair amount of marketing work for a, a revamped website and looking at those sorts of questions that marketing consultants like you to look at, like how are you different? What are your core strengths? We've been going back through testimonials. And the, the key things that we keep hearing from people are the, the community support, the support of coaches who really care, who've been there, the daily accountability through video, through text, through forum, the weekly calls, and just the overt acknowledgement that we are not here to fix you, that we are not giving you a step-by-step -step programmatic approach, but rather empowering you to find your own answers, empowering you to create your own protocol, and empowering you to go beyond the simple tricks and steps and advice and meal plans and calorie counting and three sets of reps and all that stuff, and really move into responsibility and discomfort. The, the other side of discomfort has all the goodies. So if you're interested in finding out more, wellstarthealth.com slash program, and we would love to see you in an upcoming cohort. Second, I understand there's people out there who do not want to be part of a community, and that's totally cool too. different strokes. And I wanted to let you know that I offer one on one coaching. If you're interested, you can just reach out to me via email, hj at plantyourself.com. Lots of ways to work with folks from a la carte one session tune ups to a year of unlimited 15 minute laser coaching sessions to weekly meetings, you name it, we can do it. Think about if you would like me on your team helping you navigate the changes that you know you want to make and you might be mystified about why you keep slipping up. That's what I've gotten good at in my years of coaching, really helping people align their intentions with their actions to move towards their cherished health, weight, fitness and life goals. 
Again, HJ at Plant Yourself if you'd like to find out more or if you'd like to sign up for the year long, the best value, the unlimited laser coaching, you can read about it and sign up at plantyourself.com slash laser. That's just L-A-S-E-R. Also, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So if you are one of those who can afford it and you get value out of this podcast on a regular basis, I would love for you to join the team of supporters helping me defray the costs of doing this show every single week. You can do so at patreon.com and just search for plant yourself. And by becoming an ongoing monthly contributor, you can contribute to my peace of mind and my ability to plan for the future as well. So if you're already a subscriber, a patron, thanks so much. If you're not yet, I invite you to just give whatever's comfortable a dollar a month. Totally fine. It also gets you access to all my healthy habit huddles and a reading your name at the end of every show, if you so desire. And a lot of gratitude for me and a lot of other folks who value this work. All right, so that's enough business. Let's get to the business of art education and medical education. Without further ado, Jody Esselstyn, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Howard. So I wanted to talk to you about this really cool thing that we were chatting about almost a year ago. Um, and it's something to do with the relationship between medical education and art, right? Do I, am I remembering correctly? Yes, yes. So it's kind of an odd pairing. But yes, um, in the last couple of decades, actually close to three decades, I think, um, there's been a lot of uh, research and exploration into the possible benefits to clinical education um, through looking at art in the art museum, and I've become involved in in a an angle of that. Okay, so we'll we'll, we'll get into that, but but first, okay. um, so I know you're 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 a nurse practitioner, so you're in the healthcare space. Um, what's yes. your what's your connection to the art world? Well, um, so yeah, I did my training, um, post-baccalaureate training in nursing. So I was an English major to start with and always kind of fascinated by art and art history. Um, as an undergrad, I did take some classes in art history and just found them to be kind of poetic and, and deep, almost like, you know, looking at poetry or good literature. Um, but then after college, I was propelled more into public health and women's health and ultimately um, pursued a family nurse practitioner uh, degree and license and um, practiced in that world. Um, but at the same time, was always kind of fascinated by my background in the humanities still. So I think it was 2014, I... Um, I audited some classes here at the University of Virginia, um, which were for medical students, but in the humanities. One was called Images of Medicine. One was Literature and Medicine. And in both of those classes, we did some exercises um, using art to facilitate observational skills. Um, and I just thought it, it was the first time that I had really thought about that um, conversation between medical and, you know, the medical people and art, and that art could actually be a teaching tool to, um, to enhance clinicians' clinical observational skills and also other skills as well, which we can talk about. Hmm. So this was a, this was a class, I guess, you, you were taking it in 2014 as sort of continuing ed? Uh. Yeah, yeah. Not actually for any credits, but I was kind of between, um, I had just finished a job working kind of as a wellness nurse at a fitness center um, and still had young children at home and so was looking for kind of the next step for me in healthcare. And um, I connected with the woman who teaches these courses at the University of Virginia and she invited me to come and and check them out. Gotcha. And, and there were real med students taking these classes? Real medical students, yes. They were um, 
fourth year medical students. Because uh, the reason I ask is I tried to take art history in college. And uh -huh. what I discovered, I really liked it. I remember this one lecture on Caravaggio that was just like, mm -hmm. wow, that's so cool. Charoscuro, light and dark. And that's all I remember, like from the first five minutes, because because they like turned out the lights and put on slides and I fell asleep because <laughs> I was chronically sleep deprived in college. And I'm, yeah. and I'm imagining that fourth year med students are chronically everything deprived. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, how how do you get them to to sign up for something that's not core curriculum? Well, that's a good question. I was not on that end of the conversation um, coming in from the outside. But these are pretty self-selecting uh, students. It's during their January term, and they get to choose an elective from, you know, I don't even know how many choices they're given. But the students who ended up in this class definitely had an interest in the humanities and had chosen this for themselves. And it was a morning class with the lights on, and we... We never had the opportunity to really <laughs> fall asleep. It was too small of a group. Um, and mostly we were discussing literature, um, hence the name literature and medicine. So it was a lot of poetry and, you know, Russian classics and other things like that. Uh -huh. um, and then the museum visit was just one. Um, not Sorry, not museum visit, but art. Introducing art was just one of the classes. Um, activities that we did. Gotcha. And was and was this portrayed as something that was going to help them in their medical lives, or just sort of a a fun rounding out, or you know, I don't know. I don't, like what, what was what was the pitch? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I don't actually remember how it was introduced to all of us, but I think um, just as a way of bringing another angle of the humanities into the discussion. Um, and I think pretty pretty um, quickly into the exercises that we were doing, looking at artwork and detailing what we were seeing, it became clear to everyone in the room that learning how to take a very specific and detailed visual inventory of a painting or a picture of a sculpture um, or any other form of art, for that matter, could be useful um, in the clinical setting. Um, so I, I don't recall, Howard, how, you know, whether it was revealed, you know, we're doing this to make you better at looking and seeing, um, but that's pretty quickly what, what came of it. Gotcha. And, and what, so what sorts of things... Um... You know, for in, in your medical career and in, in talking to these other students, what sorts of things do you have to look at and see, especially in a world that's becoming more computer and machine diagnostic driven? Mm. What's what's the role of, of the, the visual uh, art in yeah. in um, being a, a healthcare provider? Right. Well, that's a really good question. Um Basically, seeing, which is all about, you know, observing, identifying, discriminating, um, clustering data, um, all of those things that go into seeing and seeing detail uh, facilitate a nurse practitioner or a physician's diagnostic ability. So, you know, as soon as you walk into an exam room with a patient before you even speak to them, um, you're taking them in visually and, you know, hopefully noticing everything from um, their level of fatigue or how they're dressed or, you know, even stuff beyond the visual. So what, what smell you might pick up in the room or um, how much they're tapping their foot in anxiety. You know, there, there are plenty of details that can go unnoticed or... Um, yeah, just unnamed, which could actually be useful in the clinical encounter. So before you even start to take a history or do a physical assessment or physical exam, um, those visual details are going to go into making a diagnosis, should go into making a diagnosis. Um, so that's the goal, is um, to make clinicians more aware of 
how to slow down, how to really see, and how to be clear about what they're seeing before jumping to any interpretation of what they're seeing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and is this has is this traditionally been taught um, in, you know, in some other ways, like to, you know, do medical students and nurses and people understand that we should be looking at how they walk, the way they talk? Mm. I, I think, um, you know, I can't speak to medical school because I've only been through nursing school and kind of uh, just taken a few courses here and there in the medical world. But um, in nursing school, you know, I think there's lip service done to that kind of holistic, um, you know, taking in of detail. But quickly, when you get into practice, it can get lost because clinical encounters are supposed to be brief and you know, you're supposed to see X number of patients in a short amount of time. And I think with the on, um, on ramping of the electronic medical record, there's been even more difficulty with, you know, relying on visual analysis and visual detail. Mm -hmm. um, just because so often now we're looking at our laptops and entering data that way, not looking at our patients. So um, I know in nursing school there was a lot done with, you know, learning to see different abnormalities in the physical exam and, um, you know, learning how to listen to a heart and look in an ear and look in a throat. Um, but this work in the art museum or working with art in a separate setting really gets down to the nitty-gritty of how to learn how to see, um, which I think is not often addressed in traditional you know, mm. physical assessment teaching. Yeah, it seems to me that there might be even a, a prejudice against the, the individual subjective eye, right? Because seeing is subjective. We, we all see different things. We all kind of project what's important as opposed to, you know, a computer scan that's supposedly, um, you know, impersonal and without bias. Right. Right. I think there is certainly that, um, yeah, that leaning away from not trusting what you see because it is too subjective. And in the the art museum work that we do, um, we use a technique called visual thinking strategies. And the basis for that is three questions. And the first one is, what's going on here? And what do you see that makes you say that? So uh, having to back up interpretation with specific visual detail. Um, so that's really teaching the future clinicians how to back up before they become subjective or interpretive and really be clear about what it is in front of them that is leading to that potential diagnosis. Mm. So, so slowing down and looking is really kind of at the, at the heart of all of it. It doesn't necessarily have to use art, but art can be a great medium for learning these strategies. Hmm. Gotcha. So you said there were three questions. Was that, that was the first one or was the first two? First two. So what's going on here or what's going on in this painting, sculpture, whatever it is? Um, what do you see that makes you say that? And then um, what more? What more do you see? So just um, not letting first, first brush or first glance be all but really, and before these questions even are asked, you spend, it depends on who's leading the, the group, but you can spend, you know, a minute or three minutes or five minutes, um, or if you want to get really intense about it, ten minutes in front of one particular work of art and really get very, very specific about what, what you see. Because most of us, when we go to a museum, um, I think the statistic is we spend about seven seconds in front of a work of art before moving on to the next one. And often that time is, you know, spent glancing at the label next to the artwork, um, you know, trying to figure out what it is, who did it, what the date was. Right. And then, how, how, much would it, how, how much would I get for it on the black market? <laughs> right. Well, that too. I don't know how. I, <laughs> I mean, ob not me, obviously. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, you know, who is this artist and could I do this? Or, you know, there's just so much 
judgment and um, and often just a very cursory glance rather mm. than really prolonged looking. Right. So I remember when I was a school teacher and we were I was taking a workshop on sort of helping you know kids with literature and being able to really see what they were uh, what they were writing. We did. We we looked at a, a kid's piece of art, and the the assignment was to pass it around and say something factual about it that you noticed. And the rule was it couldn't be interpretive. And I I couldn't really do it. I was like, look 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 at this strong line, or you know, uh -huh. right, and just every, you know, to realize that everything I was saying was was a step away from. You know, this is a six inch line here. With done in charcoal, mm. and I mean, yeah. how, how difficult that was. Is, is that is that part of the, the the seeing process? Is to is to simply be able to articulate what's there as opposed to your interpretation overlaid upon it. Exactly, that's exactly right. So if you were, you know, a medical or nursing student, and you were saying in front of a piece of or whatever an artwork, saying, um, "I see strong lines." the facilitator hopefully would hear that and say, well, what do you see that makes you say strong? Mm. And then you'd have to back up and say, well, I see that it's, you know, thicker than those other lines around it. Or often if we're looking at a representational um, artwork, like a portrait, say, um, they might start out very uh, clearly saying, uh, this, I see a sad person, you know, sitting in a, a beat-up chair or whatever, and you say, okay, so what do you see that makes you say sad? Well, I see that the eyebrows are slightly furrowed or the, the lines of the mouth are downturned. Um, so it really, um, and often that, you know, then the interpretation changes or someone else might chime in and say, well, I see, you know, this, this, and this that might contradict that initial read um, and often it's interesting because often they will not even say what is right in the center of the painting or um, mm. the print or whatever it is you're looking at. So, um, for example, in a portrait, they might not even say, I see a man sitting in a chair. It might be, I see a curtain and I see a, you know, dog on the floor and I see a window and, um, that often we are hesitant, it seems, to say what's right in front of us or what's the most obvious. Mm. It's, it's almost like our, our egos want us to be cleverer than that. Uh -huh. Yeah, right. Yeah, let me let me dance around the center here and maybe that will be more, who knows, intriguing, mm. rewarding, safe. Um, yeah, so it's, it is really fascinating how... That can work, especially in a group. Uh, so, how how does this translate in your experience as as a uh, as a clinician, as someone who sees patients? What what, what do you do differently, more of, better than you did before you were exposed to this, these visual thinking strategies through through works of art? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, currently, I'm not practicing as a nurse practitioner, and I'm not seeing. Um, adult patients, but I work as a school nurse in an elementary school, so I'm seeing kids who are pre-K through fourth grade, so about age three to age ten. Um, so very different setting than how I was practicing as a nurse practitioner in a family practice. Um, but I think it's hard for me to be objective about my own practice and um, but I, I would like to think that I take a step back before assuming anything about somebody, you know, be it their chief complaint or um, their attitude, um, just because of how they look when they first walk in the clinic door. Uh, it also just, I think, just helps me slow down um, and just say, hi, you know, what, what brings you in today rather than assume that the bleeding gash on their knee is really the primary issue of what, you know, what they need from me. But to be open to any number of possibilities and not jump to conclusions or assumptions. 
Hmm. So I'm sure I could always work on that, um, but it has made me more aware of that tendency in me and in, you know, just clinicians in general. I think probably new clinicians as well as seasoned ones. Um, Mm. Yeah, so to try to, um, yeah, I guess not jump to interpretation when there's so much that I would like for the, the patient themselves to be telling me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the, those are probably the biggest things. Also, I think working with art, um, one of the, one of the goals that we have as art educators, docent, um, facilitators is to have the people in the group come away with, uh, greater comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty because truly in the art of medicine and nursing, um, there there's very little that's concrete. Um, you know, you can look at lab values one day and they might say one thing, and then the next day they might say something different. Um, and there's very little about human beings and human bodies that's, you know, predictable from day to day and person to person. So... And especially dealing with kids in the setting where I'm practicing, there's a lot that they can't articulate, and I don't have, you know, lab testing at my um, disposal. So a lot of what I have to work on is just their own narrative, and there can be a lot of confusion and lack of detail (laughs) and subjectivity in those narratives, and there's often not a lot of, you know, certainty or fact to go on. Um, so, yeah, I think those are things, too, that I, that I have grown a greater appreciation for by working with the, um, you know, in the art museum. Mm. And I, I balance my work in the school with volunteering as a docent here at the, our local uh, UVA art museum, the Fralin Museum of Art. Uh-huh. So I, and, I and feel so lucky that I get to do both. As docent, do you work with, uh, with medical professionals or just the public or just sit in the back with with catalogs or like what what is what is your day like what is your docenting like well so it's a volunteer position and it's um it's you know just by signing up for tours it's not something that i go do at a certain time every week but um we work with the public in in many forms so the tours that i think i like doing the best are these medical and nursing tours so there's one program at the UVA School of Medicine, which now includes nursing students as well, called the Clinician's Eye. And that was the one that I was first introduced to through those medical school classes. So now I get to work on the docent end of helping lead those tours. Uh, there's also a medical student-run program at UVA called the Heart of Medicine, which, hence the use of the term art in the word heart. Got it. Uh, they, they often come to the museum, but not exclusively, uh, to focus on issues of end of life, um, death and dying, loss, grief. So I've helped facilitate some of those um, group meetings in the art museum and elsewhere, uh, where we've often used art to, uh, to jumpstart conversations about suffering, death loss. Um, And then there's also a program called the Writer's Eye, which is uh, working with school children in Charlottesville um, up through high school and into the UVA college community. And we lead tours that are uh, supposed to jumpstart their thinking about writing. And so they're tasked with writing a poem or a prose piece after taking one of these tours and for most of the schools in the area, they use that assignment as something that's required in their fall semester. And then we, um, you know, the museum staff gives out awards for the best poetry or prose piece in the certain uh, age groups. So those are the tours I typically are um, am part of. I don't tend to do just basic tours for the general public who wander in off the street, but... Uh-huh more of these 
educational tour. Gotcha. So you, are you, you're involved in the Heart of Medicine program, you said? Yeah, Clinician's Eye and Heart of Medicine. Um, and then I've also been working in Richmond at the uh, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, the VMFA. They have a program there through VCU, which is Virginia Commonwealth University, working with nursing students, um, similar to the Clinician's Eye program here at UVA, and it's called The Art of Nursing. So I've been working with that group as well um, as a, one of the group facilitators. Gotcha. Does anybody come in um, sort of kicking and screaming, like arms folded, like I don't see what the, this has to to offer me as a, as a oh, healthcare sure. professional? What, what, is yeah. that, what, is that, what does that look and sound like, and, and what, you know, do, do they change their minds? Well, I mean, it's been, it's been few and far between. I can think of maybe two or three individuals, tops, who have kind of come in with arms crossed and mind made up um, that this will not be a useful exercise. Um, but typically, I think that is often born out of not knowing and, um, or fatigue or overwhelm. And uh, I, I guess there was one case where I think the person left feeling like, well, that was kind of useless. Um, but I think in the other cases, uh, I think it, you know, once you get into the exercise of it and realize it's not just an art history lecture or a deep dive into artistic technique, um, but pretty broad brush and, um, you know, also to see the rest of the group getting involved. Uh, there's also, there's a one exercise that we do in the clinician's eye, which is having the students pair up. And um, one of the students goes into our object study gallery, and they choose a piece to come out and describe to their partner. Uh, and the, so the partner who's getting the description can't see the piece that's being described. And the one hearing the description has to sketch what they think the the person who has seen the the artwork is describing, and then they switch roles. And that, I mean, that's very interactive, and it's, you know, not exactly your typical art history lecture or art museum tour, and I think often that will loosen students up and, you know, get them more engaged with each other and with art itself. Gotcha. So if we're still speaking specifically about... Um, observational skills in medicine, what, what are the outcomes that we should, you know, or could expect to be improved by improved observational skills through this sort of uh, interaction with art? Mm. Well, I think some of the actual research that's been done um, to measure outcomes, uh, I think some of the first ones were done at Yale and the one I can think of primarily is a dermatologist named Dr. Braverman who pioneered some of this work. Um, and he was looking at whether his dermatology residents could become better at their diagnostic ability to, you know, I guess find malignancies or just better at describing what they saw in skin lesions. Um, but I think the statistic I saw recently was that they measured a 56% improvement in the dermatologic diagnostic skills in the group that had been through the museum experience as opposed to their peers who had not in the control group. So certainly with things like dermatology where, you know, there's that level of detail um, and, I, you know, misidentifying a mole could be a matter of life or death. Mm. Um, I think it's also been done with radiology. And so uh, with radiology residents using these kind of museum experiences to become better at uh, identifying, you know, small levels of change in x-rays, other scans. Um, and I don't have statistics for that particular mm. measurement, but I know they have proven that there was a gain in diagnostic specificity and 
uh, that kind of thing with radiology. And I don't know what other specific, you know, branches of medicine have used this. I do know that um, one of my professors at the Yale School of Nursing is also using um, music as a way of honing nursing students' ability to learn abnormal heart, lung, and bowel sounds um, by becoming trained and listening to music. So I think there there's any number of ways of using arts and close looking, close listening to, uh, you know, really refine observational skills, whether it's visual or hearing or other. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, any branch of medicine could benefit from, uh, you know, more attuned looking, for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting because you you think that the way to get better at hearing irregular heart murmurs is to just listen to tons and tons of heart murmurs or the way to get better at identifying skin lesions is to look at lots of skin lesions and get feedback. And mm -hmm. there's there's something you know, really interesting about this indirect approach. It kind of reminds me of when I was choosing a language in middle school and they said, mm. you should take Latin because it'll help you with your SAT. I'm like, well, why, why, why don't I just study no. vocabulary words like the lists? You know, why do I? But there was something about, the, you know, the, this the, the discipline, a, a different discipline that allowed me to see things with different eyes. And I wonder if that's if right. that's what's kind of going on here that we're using sort of different parts of the brain and that it's it's, it's giving us a more holistic picture where we're able to sort of chunk data points and, and make patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's probably something to be said for that. I think also what can be beneficial in these museum settings is that it is an art museum. It's not a fluorescent lit, you know, clinical simulation lab. It's not the medical school. It's not, you know, your clinical site where you're paired with a doctor for six weeks and you're just seeing patients day after day. It's it's kind of an escape from the stresses and the, you know, familiarity of the academic setting. And it's also a setting where dialogue and teamwork are encouraged. So, you know, so they're they're getting to a place where they're in a small group. Ideally, it's somewhere between six to fifteen students in a group. Um, they're encouraged to, you know, speak their uncertainties. They're encouraged to hear out their peers. There's um, also the art museum setting can be incredibly calming in a way that I think many of our institutions of learning may not be. And so I think there's that aspect as well. And really it's about, you know, learning to see detail. It's not, um, you know, this is going to make you better able to identify a malignant mole. Um, but, you know, I think if, if these skills are practiced in a setting where there's maybe less stress and more freedom to be expressive and engage your peers, it, it goes a long way. Mm. So would so, you say would you say the typical clinic or hospital doesn't encourage teamwork, dialogue, and um, like stress free interactions? Stress free interactions. I, I mean, I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of focus and attention now on decreasing stress for clinicians, and you know, I'm sure you've heard, and it's in the mainstream media, just the level of physician and other clinician burnout, rates of suicide, I mean, they're, they're skyrocketing, rates of addiction. So I would, I would hazard a guess that they're not stress-free. I mean, <laughs> life isn't stress-free either. But I think what we need to help future clinicians and current clinicians with is finding those ways and spaces where they can step away and, you know, find outlets for stress and you know, I, I think a lot of the the wellness coaching that you're doing, while much of it I think is probably centered on making nutritional changes, is probably also about decreasing stress. And so maybe by introducing these clinicians to a setting where they experience 
less stress and maybe a sense of sanctuary or calm could come in handy, you know, later in their careers, they can remember back to, you know, oh, I can just, I can take some time out for myself and right, but, go but, be with art. But, but also that, you know, we nobody sat down in the, like, 1880s to design the modern hospital, to mm. say, well, mm. you know, let's say in about 100, 140 years, let's have, you know, 120 years, let, let's have, um, you know, fluorescent lights and dirty, <laughs> you know, linoleum floors and swinging doors. But it, it you know, it kind of grew up um, based on a series of historical um, accidents or exigencies, and if you were if you were to start from scratch and design hospitals with the goal of the well being of the people within it, whether the, the the permanent staff or the customers, I think it might you might learn some things from art museums. <laughs> oh sure, yeah, and and what you mentioned, or just to dial back a little bit, the 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 dialogue, encouraging dialogue. I think there is more focus on that currently in medical and nursing education is the idea of, of interprofessional engagement. And so there are attempts at making more opportunities for medical and nursing students to go through some training hmm. together so that when they do end up in those hospitals or doctor's offices or whatever settings they're practicing in, they already have the experience of listening to one another respecting what the other has to say, you know, not just sort of falling into prescribed hierarchical relationships that have been kind of cemented over time. Mm. It seems like there's a, there's, a, there's a danger there of, you know, especially around um, our current malpractice environment, in that if you are encouraging dialogue and differences of opinion, you're you're offering up the possibility that there's not one right answer that you know. <laughs> right. Very true. Um, but one would hope that that would decrease um, jumping to conclusions and, you know, maybe overlooking important conversations about, well, what do you think this is? And why do you think, you know, this patient is suffering? I, you know... I think it does take a level of humility that many clinicians are not naturally, you know, prone to or trained to have and an openness, to, yeah, to uncertainty, which is both scary on the one hand, but also I think safer on the other hand, because, you know, when medical error is also a huge issue um, in clinical settings and, you know, do you think the surgeon is more likely to take off the wrong leg that he's supposed to amputate or she's supposed to amputate when they're, you know, actually taking time or opening themselves up to dialogue or when they just sort of rush to conclusion? Uh, I, yeah. I, just, I agree well, with you. There is that potential for, I suppose, liability, but I think the liability is a risk no matter what. Yeah, and I guess the you know answering question number two, what do you see that makes you say that is kind of a uh, a, a guard against you know it's 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 the answer to here's here's why I was not malpracticing because right. because I I'm, I'm not just jumping to conclusions I backed it up with some sort of visual evidence and I you know it's, there's ambiguity and I could be wrong but here here was my thinking right. Yes, exactly. One would hope that that would help slow down the process of jumping to interpretation, jumping to diagnosis, jumping to treatment, jumping to amputation, whatever it is. Right. right. Um, just slow, slow the whole thing down in a culture and in an environment where we're actually, we've been pressured to speed things up and hurry things along. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, you mentioned uh, at the beginning that you, you were teaching tools to enhance not only observational skills, but other skills as well. Um, and it, it seems like, you know, um, I'm thinking of like the, the incompleteness theorem of medicine, hmm. which is, you know, like we can 
there are issues that, that are out that are related to medical practice that are outside of the practice of medicine, like the fact that we all die. <laughs> like mm. for some people, um, death is preferable to certain types of existence, like the you know, issues around family, around risk and tolerance for for pain, for disability. These are all they're not usually included in the calculus of what's the best thing to do. Does the work with art um, kind of help clinicians address the larger issues, the larger context within which they're practicing? Oh, one would hope so. I think I think that would be, you know, an ideal thing to take home as well as improving the diagnostic skills, the, especially in the work with the heart of medicine, um, where we're focused primarily on artwork that has to do with images of suffering, loss, um, end of life, it, it becomes clear that that there are multiple ways of interpreting a scene of end of life, you know, where one person might see relief from suffering or whatever, transcendence or uh, whatever, something that's kind of viewed as positive, someone else, especially potentially the physician in charge of care, might see failure or um, lack of expertise or, um, I don't know, anything that might be construed as negative or somehow not serving that patient because ultimately that patient died. Um, so I think it gets at all sorts of issues, like you just said, around mortality and the fact that, yeah, really there is no way to save every patient <laughs> forever. <laughs> Eventually we're all going to go that route. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think hopefully that is something that students will take home from the art experience, even if it's not something that gets directly spelled out to them. Yeah, well, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm imagining like looking at a, a painting of of suffering and like having a bunch of clinicians in there going, hey, I wonder if that's, you know, palsy. I wonder if mm -hmm. right, like trying to diagnose the physical, but, you know, knowing that it's, you know, it was painted six centuries ago by by some mm -hmm. master allows them to let go of their need for prefer for professional assessment and simply see humanity. Yes, right. To get at the bigger, the bigger picture. Yeah, these are human beings mm. going through this thing that we go through for all time. We will all go through, you know, birth, death, loss. Um, yeah, in one of the sessions that we had recently, we were looking at pictures of, um, I think it was a plague, some sort of plague, and just piling bodies up and you know, it was an etching of carting bodies off. Mm. Um, and there was a certain lack of humanity to it, in fact. But, um, but yeah, it can lead to juicy conversation about, you know, what is our role as, as clinicians and what happens when we don't have a cure. And um, so all sorts of things. I mean, I think it's impossible to plumb all the depths that are, um, that one could go to just looking at, at artwork, at literature, at you know any number of the humanities that can enrich the practice and the learning of medical skills. Hmm. And do you have a sense That's of? That's why there's a. Yeah. Sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, just that there's a whole branch of medical training, research, exploration that's called medical humanities, and it just seems like there's no end to the richness there. Hmm. Do you have a sense of how widespread this is? You know, we're we're both aware of sort of lifestyle medicine and, you know, plant based nutrition and things like that, that are, you know, we're sort of banging our heads to get them shoehorned into medical education here or there. Um, you know, how how is this movement doing in terms of because it, it really is a little bit subversive of of a kind of medical culture, you know, the, the sort of, you know, know it all doctor who not only knows how to fix you, but knows what's wrong with you and what you should, you know, what's important that's wrong with you and what's not, you know, how, 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 how is this making inroads in, uh, in, in the culture of medicine? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, from what I've heard from one of my mentors recently, um, she said that there, this program or these types of programs, um, you know, visual thinking strategies and using the art museum with medical students is, um, I think, pr- being practiced in approximately 100 medical schools um, in the U.S. and I think also Canada and Europe. So, and I don't know if that 100 number is just the U.S. or if that's all of the ones, um, including international ones. But I think it's it's growing. And there was there was a, a gathering of museum educators and their medical school counterparts in 2016. I think there were 65 schools represented, and now you know already in three years that's that's mm. grown by another 30 plus. So um, I don't think it's slowing down anytime soon. I think if anything, it's gaining traction in the conversation about what is important in core curriculum um, for future doctors, nurses. And I think, you know, as we do talk about lifestyle medicine, and hopefully that also will get integrated more into the curricula for clinicians, um, you know, one branch of that is stress reduction. And I would like to see this promoted as, you know, stress reduction for clinicians and you know, promotion of resilience in clinicians and trying to get rid of the increasing numbers of burnout, um, but also for their patients, something that they could prescribe, you know, whether it's a trip to the art museum or whatever, something that has to do with integrating the humanities into lifestyle choices. Yeah, and I guess the, the way I think of burnout is not so much like stress, but stress and unpleasantness minus meaning. Mm. Right? And and so where I see the real opportunity is if, you know, when doctors get to, to relate to their patients as human beings and they can connect as opposed to, you know, the the 12 minute HMO visit where you're just you're just processing uh, lab results and files and staring at your laptop as you as you enter the uh, the medical record uh, that, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who went into medicine to help people. And I know very few doctors who feel like they really are. Yeah. Yeah. Or who are given the time to take with patients, you know, to be able to actually connect with them in that meaningful way. Yeah, I think you're right. And I don't know how we would address that on an institutional level. It's, it's certainly one thing to talk about medical training, but another to completely to examine the practices. Right. Well, I guess it comes down to, um, you know, ma- making certain things required on, uh, mm. you know, on the boards and then, mm. um, you know, having insurers or whoever or payers um, start to, you know, to, to see the data and say this is this is a system you know i mean the current system obviously is off the rails in terms of what we're paying for what we're getting so this, this seems like it's a, it's an important piece to kind of tenderize hearts and minds to start asking bigger questions hmm. i love that verb to tenderize hearts and minds yeah <laughs> it's true and if we do prioritize it on the teaching end on the you know cultivating students who will become future clinicians Perhaps those future clinicians will have a stronger collective voice in changing, changing the status quo. Yeah, especially, uh, you know, on the especially, level. especially if they show up like happy and healthy, and everyone else is like, "What are you doing? What what drug did you discover?" <laughs> <laughs> like, right. Oh, it's yeah. uh, Caravaggio. <laughs> mm, Judith, yes. Judith Leister. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. Oh, I think a whole cultural shift will be required. And we're starting at, you know, just like Michael Clapper and gang are starting back at, you know, let's let's teach nutrition in medical school so that these future clinicians are actually feeling equipped to understand the power of nutrition and medicine. Um, then similarly, if we teach about art at, or whatever it is, the humanities, um, it will continue to have a place when these people are launched. Right. Yeah, future doctor. 
Yeah, it feels it feels like uh, allied causes somehow. Yeah, yeah, I like to think of it that way, for sure. Great. Any, anything else that you want to to share that I haven't asked about or thought thought about? Hmm. I don't think so, Howard. I think your your line of questioning has has helped me, you know, think about it more deeply for myself. And um, oh, I just good. hope sometime we could we could go to an art museum together. We could do a little conversation about what we see. That sounds great. Let's go in the morning so I don't embarrass myself by <laughs> falling asleep. Okay. Awesome. Uh, it's it's a deal. I'll uh, I'll, I'll uh, figure out how we can make a trip up to. Uh, to Virginia, and I'll see. I'll see if I can double the average and spend 14 seconds in front of a picture. Instead oh, of, instead. we'll spend at least that long. <laughs> so, <laughs> Let's try for 10 minutes. I will. I will stretch myself. So, J- Jody <laughs> Esselstyn, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm smiling ear to ear just thinking about mm. it, and uh, <laughs> I uh, thank you for for everything you do to to humanize um, this this uh, this field that has so much potential and uh and so much power over us Mm. well thank you for the opportunity to to have a conversation about it and um thank you for all you're doing to bring this this and many other topics to the public a pleasure well be (laughs) be well we'll we'll talk again soon i hope thank you you too bye-bye bye-bye all right i hope you found that as fascinating and eye-opening as i did um, in case you hadn't made the connection, Jody is a member of the Esselstyn clan who collectively have probably done more for the health and well-being of the world's human citizens as, uh, as anyone I can think of, not to mention all the animals who don't get eaten because of their incredible advocacy. So thank you, Jody, and, and thank you, the family from whence you sprang. So if you like this podcast and you would like to hear more of it, there are over 330 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. Most podcasting apps only keep the last 50 or so. So if you want to go back into the archives, we see when I was a wet behind the years beginner, you can do so all the way to uh, number one, which I think we're now like six, six years into this thing. So hopefully I've learned a thing or two since then. Um, what else? There is the show notes for today's episode with the links to the Museum of Art, to some of the studies that we talked about. Um, you can find that at plantyourself.com slash 335. We talked about becoming a financial supporter of the show before the interview began. Now there's some free ways that you can help the show. One is by sharing the this episode and others you might find interesting on social media, letting other people know about it. And also, this is big, writing a review and giving it some stars, some uh, some star love over at either Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or Google Play or any of the myriad places that people are getting their podcasts these days. That really helps us rise in the rankings and appear to people who might be interested but just don't know about us yet. So thanks in advance for that. So here's a new feature of the outro, um, some upcoming episodes. So next week, I got Garth Davis, and we had a fascinating conversation last week on basically truth and lies on the Internet. You know, Garth made his name um, by posting these long posts on Facebook and on Instagram explaining the science, sharing dozens of, of research articles and trying to combat the the idea that everyone is an expert online and that authority means nothing and anyone can read an abstract or see an article on Facebook and make it f- mean whatever they want it to mean. And so we discuss since the book Proteinaholic came out, what he's been up to and how he helps people identify fact from fiction and fact from fraud online. And you'll see this really interesting twist to this story that affects him personally uh, every single day. So uh, stay tuned for that one next week. 
The following week, another guest returns to the show. Judd Brewer is going to be talking about his latest apps and research on mindfulness used to uh, break addictions. So if you remember him, we, he wrote The Craving Mind and we talked about mindfulness um, against cigarette smoking and eating foods we don't want to eat. And so now we're, we're going to be looking at the, the research that he has been doing and the way he's been making this stuff publicly available through apps. Following week, Benjamin Alter is going to be talking about healing from within. So often, even in the plant-based lifestyle medicine community, we still think of healing as something that has to come from outside. But really, of course, the body heals itself. We're just giving it an environment and a safe space in which to do so. And so we dive into that deeply with Benjamin Alter. And the week after that, Amber and Anthony come on to talk about this West African uh, plant called Iboga. And it's a uh, antheogen, uh, antheogen, which I think means it helps you see God. So it's one of those sort of psychedelic plants like ayahuasca. Uh, and they have a retreat center in Costa Rica and they use Iboga for again for also for addiction recovery, but also in lots of other ways to help people heal mind, body and spirit. And I'll leave you with those four and tell you about the other ones once that once they're in the can and I can verify I've got some very exciting guests coming up that I can't wait to share with you. In garden news, squash, eggplant, basil still producing well, cherry tomatoes still going strong, regular tomatoes, rip them out, put in some new ones. Hopefully we'll get a second crop of those. Um, we caught a raccoon and relocated her about 12 miles away to uh, a lovely spot where I'm sure she will be happy and hopefully will not consume the rest of our corn. And the blueberries are done, but the grapes are starting to look heavy on the vine. Can't wait. Hopefully we'll end up with a with a good and delicious grape harvest as well. In running news, been doing a lot of walking, still have that problem with my heel. Um, yesterday I did seven and a half miles sort of walk jogging. So I've been taking more time in the morning, just getting up a little bit earlier and being more leisurely about it. And today also did about six and a half miles. So some jogging, slow jogging and walking. And hopefully that'll get me back up to uh, where I can start looking at races with an eye towards entering rather than just uh, longing to participate. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music. Check out willridenauer.com for more. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons like Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, and Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ramsey Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson. Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bennett, Miguel Lacerre, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindman, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, oops, Val Lindman rhymes with cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan. Ashley Corker and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Kobel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzanwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powers for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree. Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, who sent me a Hoosier Howdy Happy Hanukkah in July a card with five bucks in it. So much fun. It brought me back to getting gift cards from the aunties. Thank you so much, Kirby. Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Pam Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Cards, Deanne Bishop. 
Bill Burrielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherly, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Avedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.